Good morning, church family. Good morning. Well, I'll tell you, it was uh, just another reminder, this video of God's timing and his perfect timing. Uh, I think James and I and Bella, we were in a planning meeting and we put this together back in June, the, the concept for this video. I had no idea that it would fall on September 12th, just after the 11th. Obviously, no idea what was going to happen in Afghanistan. And uh, here we have this uh, great testimony from Jeff about his experience in serving and, and correlating that with spiritual warfare. Uh, you know, the more I learned about Jeff's story, I just thought God's timing is perfect in other ways. Turns out that Jeff came to know Jesus through this church. That's right. Uh, he was attending four C's at the time, and he met some students from the youth program at Osterville, and um, he was incorporated into that group. And then as he became integrated into the church, he was linked up with our former youth pastor, Brad Peterson, and led to the Lord. And uh, he happened to meet a girl named Genevieve uh, through all of that time, who happens to be Miriam's sister. And those two fell in love, and they were married right here at Osterville Baptist Church. Also a pretty humble guy. He uh, doesn't like to talk about it a lot, but during his time while serving, Jeff actually received a bronze star. Now, if you know anything of that reward, award, it's one of the highest military honors. It's certainly the highest non-combatant honor that you can receive. He was uh, awarded this because of his engineering skills. He had strengthened fortifications of towers and posts. Uh, just to give you two examples of how Jeff was used in the, in the conflict, uh, there was an example of a tower that was shot by multiple rockets and it withstood uh, with minimal casualties because of his ability to strengthen it. Another post that he was in charge of uh, developing and strengthening. Actually, they were attacked by 150 enemy combatants. There was only 15 U.S. soldiers, and they were able to stand and, and hold that fortification. So it's very incredible what, what he's done, and thank you to Jeff and any who have served in Afghanistan and beyond um, for our country. And his insights in that video really lay the groundwork for where we're heading for the next couple of weeks. You might recall last week, the big idea of the message was that, you know, Satan is not just a, a figment of the imagination. He's not just some mythical concept. No, he's real. And the, the moment that you and I begin to embrace the reality that Satan is real we then have to embrace the reality that we are involved in a conflict. Not just a small conflict, a cosmic conflict. A conflict that has been raging since the beginning. And if you are to enter into any kind of conflict without reconnaissance, you're setting yourself up for failure. Jeff gave a good definition of that. He said, you know, it's to better understand the enemy's position, their strategies, so that you are rightly positioned within that conflict. And if you enter into that space and you don't know who your enemy is or how strong they are or what they intend to do, you're in trouble. 
So we're going to be doing a reconnaissance report for the next two weeks. We're going to start by looking at Satan's nature, and then we'll move into looking at his weapons. Now, why would you begin with nature? Well, when you know an enemy's nature, you have insights into who they are. You understand them. And it's with those insights that you can be better protected. You can see them for what they are. As you look at Satan in the Scriptures, we, we become aware that he's a master manipulator. And he seeks to conceal his real nature. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 11.14. He said, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It makes me think of a scene in the uh, fellowship of the ring and the Lord of the Rings. As the hobbits are first embarking upon their journey, they, they come across this cloaky, shady figure named Strider. And, and they're really having a hard time discerning whether or not Strider is friend or foe. Turns out that he's actually Aragorn, the king, and he's a really, really good friend. But they can't figure it out. And so Frodo basically arrives at this principle when he decides that he's going to trust Strider, he says, I think a servant of the enemy would look fairer and feel fouler. That's true. Satan, by all appearances, looks pretty good, but internally, he's corrupt to the very core. Which then helps me to understand as a believer that I can never trust him. He's so corrupt that anything that he says is in my best interest is in reality in my worst interests. So we're going to see that this morning by asking the Bible two questions about Satan. First, how did he come about? And then secondly, why is he like he is today? So it's really his origin and his fall. Let's begin with his origin. Now, as you look at the Scripture, no one knows for sure when Satan sinned. And there's even disagreement as to whether or not there are passages that give a record of his fall. Now, I believe that the Bible actually does do that. Uh, two passages, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. But different scholars will disagree on whether or not Satan's in view in this passage. And if he's not, well, then we don't have a record of his rebellion against God. It doesn't matter. We still know that he's wicked and he's the enemy. But I do believe that these passages bring us into that space of his origin and his fall. Ezekiel 28 is one of those passages. As this passage falls in a sequence in Ezekiel where he's pronouncing prophecies against nations who were involved in the downfall of Israel. They've been taken captive and, and to inspire some hope in these exiles. The Lord is talking about the future of these nations. He'll move on from there in Ezekiel and give them hope and talk about a time when they will be reconstituted as a nation, both in the present but also in the distant future, an eschatological future for them. And it's here that Ezekiel predicts the fall of the prince of Tyre. Now, there's little doubt that in verses 2 through 10, he's referring to this historical figure, Ethbaal III. Uh, during this time, he's the ru ruler of the Phoenician seacoast city, Tyre. He's an arrogant man, boastful in his achievements. 
But here's what I'm going to suggest. Behind the human leader is Satan, the superhuman leader. Remember what we saw last week in 1 John 5.19. Everyone is either under God's rule or they're under the influence, power, and authority of Satan. Now, one thing that I believe Scripture makes clear about Satan is that he is not omnipresent. He can't be all places at all times. In fact, I don't even think he can be two places at the same time. So if that's true, Satan has to strategically position himself. He has to be at the right place at the right time in order to accomplish his purposes. And who would be better to influence than world leaders, right? It's in that place that you could really operate and advance your mission or your ideas. So with that in mind, let's take a look now at Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 14. So the text picks up and it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Now, quickly as you look at this text, there's a couple of things I want to point out as to why we think that Satan is the figure behind this king. First, you notice that in verse 2, or in the first part, the first 10 verses, the king of Tyre is actually called the prince of Tyre. So that changes prince to king. And then as you look at it, You were the signet of perfection. You were in Eden. You were an anointed guardian cherub. That really doesn't sound like a human figure, does it? No, we're really talking about someone else. And I believe what we're talking about here is Satan before he became Satan. He was first called Lucifer, or the shining one. Now, God didn't create any being that is his equal. He can't do that. He's infinitely superior to all of the creative realm. But when you look at Lucifer, he was called the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. In verse 13, he's in Eden. So this isn't the Garden of Eden, I would suggest, but a garden that is truly paradise. It's bedecked with jewels and every form of extravagance. He is the pinnacle of God's creation. At this point, we also read in verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you, and you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Donald Barnhouse, the uh, famed preacher of 10th Prez, wrote a book called The Invisible War, and he said this of Satan before the fall. He said that he occupied the role of prime minister of God ruling possibly over the universe, but certainly over the world. He continues, 
Satan awoke in the first moment of his existence in the full-orbed beauty and power of his exalted position, surrounded by all the magnificence that God gave him. He saw himself as above all the hosts in power, wisdom, and beauty. Only at the throne of God itself did he see more than he himself possessed. How long did Satan enjoy these privileges? Well, we don't really know. Could have been millions of years. It could have been for a short time. John Milton suggests that Satan fell out of jealousy when God created Adam and Eve. He saw them. He saw the special position that God had given him and struck a chord of jealousy in his heart. Whatever the reason, though, no created being has received more from God. You get that? Yet for Lucifer, it's not enough. Now we continue in the text. We look at verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. This is a description here of how sin entered the universe. It's the beginning or origin of evil. Now, what is this original sin? Well, in a word, it's pride, hubris, arrogance, self-love, conceit. You see it again in verses 16 and 17. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. He's the manager of all of God's affairs. He was proud of himself for that. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. It all comes down to pride. As you're looking at Scripture and you're starting to take all of this in, think about what we're talking about here. Here you have Satan. He is the pinnacle of God's creation, right? And yet he wants more. Do you think that you could be susceptible to pride? And the Bible talks about it all over the place, doesn't it? And it gives us an, an idea of what the essence of pride really is. I want to suggest to you that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. Okay? You're not proud because you're rich or you're smart or you're beautiful. You're proud because you're richer, smarter, and prettier. That's what makes you proud. If, if everyone was at an equal playing field, if everyone had the same amount of money, the same kind of looks, and also the same smarts, there wouldn't be pride in the world. But that's how pride operates. And it was Satan or Lucifer's trap. He had no pleasure at being just where he was in the universe. He wanted more than that. 
And if it led to his demise, then it can lead to ours as well. So we've got to ask the question, how do I root it out of my life? Well, John Maxwell gives a couple of uh, suggestions for application. The first thing that he tells us with pride is that you need to admit that you're proud. It all starts there. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, and by the way, I'm beginning to wonder if we can even have a sermon without quoting C.S. Lewis anymore. But he said a lot of good stuff. So he said this of pride. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggest step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, You are very conceited indeed. You see, you can't conquer a problem that you don't believe you have. The second step is that you need to express gratitude. You look at Lucifer, lacks nothing, well, except for gratitude. It was the one thing that he didn't have in his world. Henry Ward Beecher said that a proud man is seldom a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. Do you know why the Scripture talks about gratitude all the time? Do you think it's because God needs to hear thank you? Like that's something he's missing and he's not full enough unless he hears thank you from you? No, you need to say thank you to God far more than God needs to hear thank you from you. You know what happens when I don't act in gratitude in my world? I become this self-focused black hole. You just walk around, the whole universe getting sucked into your gravity, producing nothing. That's what happens. Thirdly, you must practice servanthood. Jesus said this, that servanthood is the true pathway to greatness. He who wishes to be great among you must be your servant, Matthew 20, 26, which is so concerning today because so many people have adopted an attitude of selfishness, not selflessness. And it's not just happening outside of the church and the culture. It has found its way into the church. You know how I know that churches are becoming less and less healthy? There's a lack of desire to serve, okay? And and our idea of serving more and more is, I will serve as long as it is convenient. You know, that is a huge problem because that has no sacrifice involved. You can't serve without sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect servant, wasn't he? He left heaven, entered earth. Do you think that involves sacrifice? Of course it did. You have to do a gut check. You have to ask yourself the question, when have I served in the last year? i got to tell you, if you look at that and you say, I haven't, whether outside of the church or inside of the church, you got to ask, what am I about? Or even better, Who am I about? You see, pride is a big issue. And you've got to avoid it. If you think that 
Satan fell from his grand position because there was something intrinsically wrong with him that you might not share. You've got another thing coming from you. He was created magnificent and perfections, as the text tells us. And if he can fall, you can fall. That's why we've got to beware of pride. Now, we've got to ask a theological question from here. How did that happen? How can an unrighteous choice arise out of the heart of a being that God created righteous? Or even more to the point, why would a perfect creature become dissatisfied in a perfect world? How does that happen? A lot of theologians attribute that to the idea of free will. He had a choice and he made a choice. But I want to suggest to you today that probably the best answer to that question is we just don't know. Okay, God knows, God understands all mysteries, but there are limitations or gaps in our understanding. Erwin Lutzer, writing on this question, says maybe this is a better place to be. He says, what we do know is that Satan was self-deceived, thinking that rebellion was necessary if he were to put his motivated self-interest first. He failed to grasp that even if he were motivated by self-interest, obedience to God would still be in his best interests. To put it differently, God's best for him and his best for himself was actually one and the same. And you want to know what? That's always true. That's always the case for all seven billion people in this world right now. God's best interest for you and your best interest from you are always one and the same. The only thing that will blind you to that, of course, is pride. So now we take a look at one more passage. We're going to flip over to Isaiah 14. If you have your Bible, you can go there with me. Isaiah 14. I'm going to move from diagnosing the issue of pride to looking at the motivation. What led Satan into this pride? And we enter into a similar type of prophetic passage as Ezekiel. Um, Isaiah, as he's writing in this one, is not talking about Tyre. He's talking about the king of Babylon. And then he describes Satan who stands behind the king. And he lists five motivations that led Lucifer to blindly believe that he could dethrone God. Each of those begins with an I will statement. So we pick up at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now, in that first verse, you can underline O day star if you have your Bible with you. That is actually the term where we derive that name Lucifer. If you were looking at this text in the King James Version, it actually says, O Lucifer, in the text. We also see here um, that there's a parallel potentially with Jesus' words from Luke 10.18. When the disciples were coming back on their journey after they went into towns and they were declaring the kingdom of God, they gave him a report and Jesus then proclaimed this in Luke 10, 18. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's almost like he's transporting back in his memory to that day when Satan had fallen. And of course, as the disciples are bringing about the kingdom of God, we're seeing the revolution start, the, the gospel revolution, where Jesus is reclaiming this place for his own namesake. 
And we take a look at these I will statements and we can look at them one by one. They all give us a sense of his motivation. I will ascend to heaven. So Lucifer is already dwelling in heaven at this time. And the statement implies that he wishes to take God's place. It wasn't good enough to just stand by the throne. No, he wanted to sit upon the throne. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne. The, the stars of God in the Old Testament Hebrew is often symbolic of the angels. If you want a cross-reference for that, you can look at Job 38.7. So the idea is that being second in command isn't good enough for Lucifer. He doesn't want delegated authority. He wants to command the angels. He wants to be worshipped and feared by them. I will sit on the mount of assembly. In Hebrew, a mountain is frequently symbolic of a kingdom or a nation, so Lucifer is desiring to rule the kingdom of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, the clouds often being symbolic of glory. So Lucifer wants the glory that only God deserves. And it tells us in the Scriptures that God is the one who sits above the clouds. In Psalm 104, verse 3, the Lord makes the clouds His chariot. I will make myself like the Most High. That expression is pretty clear. It just, again, highlights His obstinance, His defiance. And this is the moment when everything changes in the universe. Up to this point, every created being is obedient to God, but now there will be opposition to God's just rule. And we know from the rest of Scripture that Satan isn't the only one involved in that opposition to God's rule. Of course, there are fallen angels who are demons, and they become a part of his... Um, control upon this earth. And then there's also the fall of humanity, which we'll be taking a look at next week as we look at Satan's weapons. And if you were to stop right here, you would think to yourself, ah, oh, this is a pretty bleak picture. This isn't good. But I got to tell you, Scripture tells us that Satan is a great manipulator, but also a great miscalculator. He is. He miscalculated big time when he did all of this. Here's something we got to learn about pride. Pride makes you stupid. I'll say it again in case you missed it. Pride makes you stupid. I want this to really sink in, so we're going to all say that together when I count to three. One, two, three. Pride makes you stupid. It's true. Pride makes you stupid in your relationship with God. Pride makes you stupid in your marriage. Pride makes you stupid with your children. Pride makes you stupid with your family. It makes you stupid with your friends. Pride makes you stupid at work. Pride makes you stupid when you're driving on the road. It makes you stupid in the grocery store. Stupid, stupid in your chair. Stupid, stupid everywhere. That's what it does. And it also causes you to miscalculate. I want to...
give you a little object lesson of that. I've asked Katie if she would actually join me up here for a moment, and we can give you an idea here. So Katie and I, come here, sweetie, you got to stand right next to me. So Katie and I have yet to check off on our bucket list a trip to the Grand Canyon. I'm sure some of you have been there. I hear it is beautiful beyond compare. Now, Katie, I want us together to envision that we're standing down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and we're looking up at the rim of the Grand Canyon. Can you see it in your eye right now, just how beautiful it is? And imagine what kind of creator could create something like this. And as we're standing here, we're taking it all in. Do you see it? It's beautiful. And the first words out of my mouth as I talk to you is, Katie, I bet you're jealous that I'm a couple inches taller than you are. You go ahead and sit down. What a misunderstanding, right, of my place in the grand scheme of things. I'm worried about inches while we're standing in front of miles. And that's what it's really all about when it comes to pride. We're beginning to get a sense of the nature of Satan. In fact, I didn't have to preach all of this sermon. I could have just quoted John 8, to you. Jesus hit the nail on the head. He said he was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth. He's so self-deceived, he couldn't be in the truth if he wanted to. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So while Satan is constantly strategizing and plotting and planning, he's also fundamentally flawed in his ability to calculate. I mean, think about it. Throne room of God, seeing the glory of God in all of his majesty and greatness, and you're looking to your right and your left, and you're saying, I'm better than these angels. He's worried about inches when he's standing in front of the infinite. And then he overreaches. And he thinks that he can ascend to the throne of God in infinitely wrong miscalculation. And he continued into his miscalculations. Three that I see. One, he miscalculates his own abilities. You see, Satan can't control what happens in the future. He influences the future, but if he declares something to happen, it doesn't necessarily mean that it happens. If he's being involved in your situation, in your life, if he's influencing you, guess what? You have a will, a volition to choose to do God's, thing, God's plans, God's way. You can thwart Satan. He can't make things happen. He also miscalculated his autonomy. Here's the thing. Satan desperately wanted to control things. And while he is operating outside of the will of God, we see in the scriptures that he's never able to make a decision apart from God's permission. Think about that. Some of you may not be walking with God right now because you want to be in control of your world. You want to do things your ways. You want to be in charge. But the problem is, 
you're never in charge ultimately. God is still in charge. So you could have your best interests and his best interests for you aligned, and, and that really kind of actually gets things moving in the right direction. Otherwise, you're just fighting against the inevitable. He's always in control. We see it in the book of Job. Satan comes and he tells God that Job's only following him because, you know, he just likes all the things that you give him. And then he asks permission. Can I do some stuff to Job? In fact, in Job chapter 1, verse 12, God says this to Satan. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Do you see that? There's a contingent. You may do up to this point, but no further, because guess what? I'm in control. I say what happens. We also see this in Luke. Jesus is telling the apostle Peter that Satan is out to get him, and he says, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What's the implication there? He doesn't get what he wants. Now, uh, Peter falls, doesn't he? He denies Christ, but he gets picked back up again. He doesn't get sifted like wheat. And this moves into the third miscalculation. Satan miscalculated God. He thought that by leading humanity astray, that he would ultimately disrupt God's plans and purposes for humanity. But his great miscalculation was his inability to envision that God would actually lower himself to redeem people. You know why he can't conceive of that? Because he would never lower himself. I'll tell you, some of us have not put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior for that same reason. We think in ourselves, I can earn God's favor it actually takes lowering yourself to trust in grace, right? It does. And God ultimately lowered himself by coming to us in the person of Jesus. The Apostle John said in 1 John 3.8 that this was one of the great works of Jesus. He says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But get this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. God became flesh. Remember, there are two paths you can be on. You can either be on God's path or Satan's. Which do you want to be on? And you know, if you want to be on God's path, there's only one way to get on that path. The Bible says you have to trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for your sins. So that was a great work. The Bible says when you placed your faith in him, your, your sins were nailed to the cross. He bore them on his body for you in your place. But another great work that he was accomplishing on the cross was he was taking the battle right to the front lines of Satan's kingdom, and he was kicking his butt. In Colossians 1.15, it says that he disarmed the rulers or authorities. Maybe a better way to translate that is he disarmed the demonic 
rulers and authorities. He was like a grand conquering general who defeated his foes and marched them through a city saying, I am victorious. I have won. Friend, if you don't want Satan influencing, controlling your life, you've got to get on Jesus' side. And the only way to get on Jesus' side is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I want to say this this morning. If you haven't done that, today's the day. I invite you to. I invite you to place your faith in him. In fact, let's do something that we don't do often enough. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and give God our undivided attention. Now, I'm speaking specifically if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus. I want to invite you this morning to do that right now. And you can do that by just simply joining with me in a prayer. Let's pray this together. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, of course, you are no longer in Satan's kingdom. You're in the kingdom of God. And uh, the next step, of course, is to get involved in a local church. And we invite you here at Osterville to grow in your faith and continue in your faith journey.